It's hard to believe sometimes the brevity of information that's given to us when you read through the scriptures. You would have the tendency to think that as you began Exodus chapter 2 and you completed it, that not an awful lot of time has gone by. However, from the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1 to the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1, 80 years have gone by. And it's hard to fathom that for as little information is found there. 80 years now have gone by. Moses is 80 years old uh, at this point. And that's an important factor to keep in mind as we read about what's about to happen now uh, to Moses. We saw at the beginning of chapter Two, the, the birth of, of Moses, and Moses is rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh with great irony because Pharaoh has decreed that all of the male boys that were born by the Hebrews need to be cast into the Nile. After that, at 40 years old, Moses sees himself as God's deliverer and is attempting to bring about that, a deli- that deliverance to the Hebrews. But when he tries to intervene between two Hebrews that, that are fighting, they say to Moses, basically, well, you know, who made you prince and ruler over us? And uh, understanding that now the information had gotten out that he had killed an Egyptian, we see Moses then fleeing to Midian. While he's in Midian, he sees these daughters of Ruel coming to uh, a well and some shepherds drive them away and Moses delivers them and uh, Ruel and the daughters receive him, receive Moses as their uh, deliverer and so he marries Zipporah, the daughter of Ruel. They have a child, a son named Gershom and that's basically how chapter 2 ends. Yeah, watch what happens here in the third chapter as, as we see a, a new scene unfold. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Then Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Great beginning scenes here as these 80 years have transpired. Moses now 80 years old. The very first verse tells us that Moses is keeping the flock of Jethro. It wasn't uncommon in those days to have, have two names, Jethro, Israel. And so same person there. And so he is tending the flock. He's keeping the sheep. And the reason why that's useful even to bring out at the very beginning, because if you remember what we were told way back in the days of Genesis when Jacob is coming down with his family into Egypt and Joseph is instructing them and saying, here's what you need to tell Pharaoh and tell them why you're here and what you do. You'll notice Genesis 46.33 says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And what chapter 3 opens with is you consider the high stature of Moses, who is rightfully adopted by Pharaoh's daughter as her son, as chapter 2 says. And now from that lofty position, Moses is now a shepherd in the wilderness, a shepherd in the land of Midian, and he has an occupation now that the Egyptians would utterly abhor and despise. And yet that is how far Moses has fallen at this point. No longer is he considered a a, a prince or of royalty of Egypt, but now he is a despised shepherd in the wilderness. And in verse 1 tells us as he is out there with his flock, he goes to the west side of the wilderness and comes to Horeb. And and, and talk about uh, some foreshadowing here when the text tells you the mountain of God. This is going to be a significant place for the rest of Israel's history here from Exodus to Deuteronomy. This is a very important place and we don't know that yet when you're first initiated into the story, but here is the mountain of God. This is where the Ten Commandments are going to be given. And verse 2 tells us an angel of the Lord appears in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And here is Moses looking and he sees that the bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And he he's looking at this. You can just imagine being out there in the wilderness. And here is this, this bush that is just on fire. And yet it's not disintegrating, it's not consuming, it just continues to burn. And the text tells us that he's about to go closer to check that out, which who wouldn't do that? I think, okay, why is this bush not burning? Let's go inspect this a little bit closer. But we're told there as Moses contemplates doing that in verse 3, the Lord sees that and calls out to Moses and says, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. And the Lord's first words, I just want you to think about the very first impression that you are going to lay upon your servant as you speak to him, as he is now about to approach this burning bush, as he is interested in why that is happening. Moses, Moses. And the first words are, do not come near. First words, Moses, Don't come near. And then he continues. Take off the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
first message, first picture of God, first thing that he wants Moses to understand about who God is, is that there is a gap between God and humans. Very first concept. As we're going to notice in the book of Exodus, these next three chapters, and arguably the whole book of Exodus, and arguably the whole Pentateuch, and arguably the whole Old Testament, is about explaining who God is. And that's beginning right here. Moses sees this bush, the Lord now is coming in the bush, and the very first thing that we're going to teach Moses about who the Lord is, is don't come any closer. You cannot approach God. You cannot be near God. It is a concept that is found all throughout the Old Testament that humans cannot draw near to God. And the only way to approach God is you need an intercessor. You need a a, a mediator. It's one of the, the concepts of the tabernacle and of the temple. Tabernacle. Who could go inside that tabernacle? Not Joshua Israelite. You weren't allowed to enter that presence. Same thing with the temple. Only Levites could do the work as priests inside of there. And even they could not enter into what was considered the presence of God in that most holy place. God was over and over again communicating. You cannot come near God. You cannot approach God on your own. Later on, the scriptures reveal to us the reason why is because we are not holy. That we are full of sin. And that's the reason why we cannot come before Him. And that is the picture that verse 5 gives. Take the sandals off your feet. Don't come near because you're on holy ground. Because wherever God is, wherever His presence is, that's where holiness is. And so Moses, do not come any closer. But then notice the second picture as God wants to inform Himself to Moses and teach Moses and all of Israel through this encounter about who God is. Verse 6, the next thing you're going to say. First is, you can't come near me. The second is, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You say, Now why would you say that? What is that intending to teach? But this is a reminder of a covenantal God. This is a reminder that God keeps His his promises. It is a reminder that God has not forgotten His people. You think about how often God will come along later and His explanation about Himself is, well, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, you say, why is that relevant hundreds of years later, thousands of years later? Because you're to remember that God made covenants with those men. And God keeps those promises. And when God now comes to Moses and says, Guess what? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's intended to tell Moses, I have not forgotten my people. The covenant is still intact. And I want you to recognize how much time has passed by when you think about that. Think about it has been 40 years since Moses made his attempt to deliver the people. You know, Moses, his parents, they recognize that this is a special child. They recognize there's something unique about him. That's what Acts and Hebrews tells us along with Exodus chapter 2. And Moses understood that he was to deliver his people. 
But now 40 years have gone by since that failed incident where he tried to begin that deliverance. Do you think Moses thought he was supposed to deliver the people any longer? After 40 years have gone by? 40 years is a really long time. It's not like 40 days went by. 40 weeks went by. 40 years have gone by since that moment. And now God comes to Moses at 80 years old and says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I would like to impress upon you something even more. What was going on at the beginning of Moses' birth? Remember, we have a Pharaoh that has arisen that does not know Joseph. And in his concern for that the Israelites would not be too numerous and overtake the Egyptians. Not only has he instituted a decree that you would cast the Hebrew babies that are born, the males, into the Nile, but remember that he is oppressing them with slavery and harsh labor. How long has that been going on? Eighty years. Does it seem that God had forgotten His people? Yeah, it did. A whole lifetime has passed by. Eighty years have gone by since the beginning of this enslavement. Eighty years have gone by since this tortured time, this oppression. Eighty years have gone by since the decree of Pharaoh's given out there that you'll kill the Hebrew boys that are two years old tonight. I just want us to get a sense of that because what we're already beginning to see with God is an important reminder that just because time has passed by doesn't mean that God is not going to act. And that's what's happening here before Moses. Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had made promises to those people. One of them very important at this moment. You're going to dwell in that land. That's the land of where my people are going to be. It's in the land of Canaan. In fact, God brings that up in verse 8. That's the land. But all this time has gone by. It's been an enormous amount of time. A time of enslavement. We believe that slavery was at least 210 years and the time since the promise given to Moses and his sojourn was 430 years. Well, as time has passed by, surely God is not going to act. Surely the promises are dead. And I just am so impressed by this picture that's given to us that here is God coming and saying, the covenant still remains that God keeps his promises How often we can feel like God is not going to keep His Word and that God does not keep His promises because a significant amount of time has passed by. How often we may ask God in prayer for certain things and think, well, God doesn't hear, God doesn't care, God doesn't listen because it seems that prayers are not being answered. And I'd like for you to just put yourself in the place of Moses for a minute and think about how much time has gone by. And now God comes and says, you're going to take my people out of Egypt. Wouldn't have been Moses said, now? Now? Now at 80 years old I'm going to do this? I was trying to do that 40 years ago. Why didn't we do it back then? Because then it wasn't the time. 
How often we want to put God into the box of our schedule, our time frame, our clock of how things have to go and when they will happen and the speed at which it will happen. And over and over again, we see a God who keeps his promises, not according to our time frames, not according to our calendar, not according to our clock. And this one is, is an amazing one, especially because his people, the people of Israel are suffering for all of these years. Has God forgotten his people? Not the slightest. Not in the slightest. For now he is going to act. One final thing in the first few verses that we have to catch in this and just considering the time frame of that is it is so interesting that Moses then spends his time in the wilderness for 40 years. It is not by accident that when we see Jesus then coming back onto the scene in Matthew after he returns from Egypt, the very next scene that is given to us in the book of Matthew as chapter 4 opens is that Jesus as Savior, where does he have to go? He has to leave also and go into the wilderness. And how long will he be there? He'll be there for 40 days. And then once the 40 days are done, he'll come back. And that's a parallel that's being given to us of what we were waiting for and what's being pictured with Moses. Is that out into the wilderness he will go, and then he'll come back. And now deliverance is about to happen. So just as Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years, and now God comes and says, now is the time, now is the time to act, now we're going to save my people, now we're going to bring deliverance. In the same picture, Jesus in the wilderness, successful against the temptations of Satan. Now is the time for deliverance. Now he's going to return and he's going to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and proclaim a message of salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the picture that Exodus is giving to us and what they were longing for in what was going to happen in the future. How about another picture about the kind of God we serve Notice the next thing that God says in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I just want to stop on that for a minute. Why are they God's people? Let's go backward. What has Israel done to make them God's people at this point? Where would we turn to and go, well, here's all the reasons why that the people of Israel are God's people. And God now comes and says, I've seen the affliction of my people and I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. These are my people and I'm now going to act. Why are they God's people? What have they done? Well, we get a little bit later on, we're going to notice it's not that they're righteous. They're going to drag a bunch of idols out of Egypt. Unbelievable. It's not that they were doing something righteous and holy and good that God came to them and said, well, you deserve to be my people. I'm going to choose you. In fact, Deuteronomy wanted to go out of its way when Moses gives his final speech and says, it's not because you were something. It's not because you were big or mighty or righteous or any of those kinds of things. Why did God choose them? Because God said, I'm going to choose you. That was it. It was God's prerogative. It was God's grace. 
It was His loving kindness. That was the whole reason why. God had determined these are going to be My people. These are the ones that I'm going to bring salvation through. These are the ones that I'm going to bring Christ through. And there was no basis by which that you would look at Israel and go, well, they're just so much better than everybody else. God over and over again said, you were nothing. Well, you get out to... Ezekiel and Ezekiel is going to use a very vivid imagery of describing Israel as this basically abandoned baby in the wilderness that God came by and saw that nobody cared for you and so he came along and cared cared for it. Because there was nothing special about Israel in the slightest. The whole idea about salvation is the only reason salvation exists is because God determined to do so. God decided, I'm going to save a people. And God decided, I want to have a people to have with eternity with me, and I'm going to choose to be with them. That's a stunning thing. Because God is sufficient. God doesn't need us. It's not like God is, you know, going, boy, I'm just really incomplete without a bunch of humans that would, you know, be up here with me to spend eternity with me. We're really bored up here in heaven and wanting to play basketball with somebody. I mean, why does God do that? It's a staggering reflection of the character of God when you stop and hear the words of God saying, those are my people, and we have read nothing to indicate any reason why, except God said, I'm going to have a people, and I choose you. That was the power when we studied the book of Ephesians a few years ago, and we studied chapter 1, because the Apostle Paul is relating to those concepts when he talks about you're predestined, you're adopted, you're my children, all of those great blessings that are just delineated throughout that first chapter that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because that's who God is. That's His character. That's His kindness. That's His graciousness. That's His goodness on complete display. It's not because we moved God that God said, man, there's some really good people down there. I ought to figure out a way to save them. God just said, I want to save people because that's who I am. And here we already see that, that here in verse 7, that God would look down upon these people and say, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. Why should God even care? But he does. He cares. He knows their suffering. He knows what they're going through. And verse 8 is so powerful. And I have come down to deliver them. That's a big message right there. God will come down to deliver his people. And so God says, it. here's what I'm going to do. I've come down to rescue them. I've come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give them the land. I'm going to keep these promises. And again, we're already seeing a picture of what God is going to do. Here's another portrait of the Savior that's put before us that for God to save the world, what he's going to do is he's going to come down. But he's going to do it in a far bigger way this time around. Because it will be God himself who comes down. But here you're already getting that foreshadowing. I've seen the suffering of my people. I see that they're imprisoned. I see they're enslaved. And how is salvation going to come except God has to come down? And God is going to save. 
And so a beautiful picture that's given to us. Now, with the weight of all of that, here is God now in verse 10. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What would be your response to that? All right. It didn't work out 40 years ago. And God now says, now's the time. And you are going to go before Pharaoh and you are going to deliver my people out of Egypt. Would any of us had any different response than Moses? Because Moses says, who am I that you're picking me to do this? I think that's a fair answer. I'm not worthy. You're going to use me to be the one to accomplish this. I'm going to be the one that's going to go before Pharaoh and lead the people out. I'm going to be the one to rescue them. Who am I that I should do such a thing? Who am I to be able to go before Pharaoh and bring these children out of out of Egypt? A powerful response. Who am I that I would do this? But even more powerful is God's response to that. You see God's answer in verse 12? Does it sound like an answer? <laughs> when you read verse 12, does God go, well, let me give you all the reasons why I think you're awesome, Moses. Let me bolster your self-esteem. Moses, you're a really good guy. I really like you. You're really fantastic. You've done a good job raising your kids so far. You know, it's a fantastic thing that you do there. Uh, Moses, the reason why you should do this is because you've been a shepherd for 40 years. I mean, who would be a better person to lead Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness and to the but you, you've been a shepherd. You've done such a great job with these sheep. You haven't lost a single sheep. Here you are out on the west side of the wilderness caring for the sheep. You are a fantastic shepherd. And that's the reason why I chose you. Moses, you can do amazing things. I mean, why wouldn't I pick you? Pharaoh's going to listen to you. You used to live there. You used to be a child of the daughter of Pharaoh. was adopted by her. Of course you're the right man for the job. Think about all the benefits that I can by using you to go back to Egypt so that you can have special access before Pharaoh. That's the reason why. Where are all those reasons? They're not there. Because that's not why. Who am I that I should lead these people? And the answer is not... Well, let's start listing all of your achievements and all of your accomplishments and all of your abilities and what a kind of speaker you are and all the things you can do and all the different ways you'd be so valuable to me. And I'm so grateful, Moses, that you have all this experience under your belt as a shepherd and as an Egyptian. I can use you to do all this. And we often use that kind of worldly wisdom about things, don't we? We often do that when it comes to like qualifications for shepherds and things like that. We come with all kinds of worldly thought processes rather than just going with what God says. I want you to notice what is God's answer to who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? Here's God's answer. I don't care who you are. I will be with you. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. God says, who are you? Who am I? (laughs) I will be with you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you think you can do. It doesn't matter what you think you can't do. 
Oh, we like to do that with God. Well, I'm, Lord, I can't do this. I don't have any ability to do all these things. I, I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. I don't have all this. I can't do it. We're going to get to look at that, Lord willing, in, in two weeks. And we come back to this text and Moses is going to start throwing all of his excuses before God of why he can't do all this. But it already is starting right here where God is trying to indicate something. It's not about who you are. It's about God is with you and that's all you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need any other kind of qualification. You don't need to have special talents. You don't need to have some kind of special abilities. In fact, I would submit to you the last thing that God wants you to do is to look at your own abilities. When you start thinking about, well, okay, how can I serve God? Well, I'm pretty good at this, and I'm pretty good at that, and I'm pretty awesome in the way I do this, this, and this. That's the last thing God wants you to do. In fact, how often God is trying to teach people that it's your insufficiency that makes you ready to do the work. When we get to the end of 2 Corinthians, what's the Apostle Paul going to say? The very same thing. Here's Paul with a thorn in the flesh. Lord, are you going to take this away? He prays again and again and again. God's answer, I'm enough. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. I will boast in my weaknesses. So the glory and the power of God will be on display. If Moses goes back and it's about how awesome Moses is in doing this, who's going to get the glory when deliverance happens? Moses. But if Moses is insufficient for the task, who's going to get the glory? God is. Oh, friends, what we do not need is a greater self-esteem and greater encouragement. I'm so awesome. Look at all the good things I can do. I can do this. I can do that. What we need is a greater awareness of God's presence. That's all we need. So many times, the things that hold us back from doing the work that God has given us to do is because we look at ourselves and we say, well, I can't do that. I'm not sufficient. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good teacher. I don't think well on my feet. I can't help this. And so we look at all of our abilities. We look at all of the things that we can't do. That's not what God wants us to do. And I think it's important that we feel the way Moses feels. Who shouldn't feel insufficient for the task of the kingdom of God? We should feel that way. There's nothing wrong with that feeling. In fact, I think God wants us to feel that way. I feel the weight of that in this job. I feel very insufficient for the task. That's what God wants. If I thought I was awesome at it, that'd be the worst thing I could do. I need to feel the weight of insufficiency. So that God would be put on display. How often we take the weight of insufficiency and we go, well, I can't do anything. I can't. I can't help. Nothing I can do in the kingdom of God. I have no abilities. I have no talents. I have nothing to offer. Well, how often we take the parable of the talents and do that. Well, you have a talent of something that you can give to God. God doesn't need any of your talents. I am with you. That's all you need. That's all you need. 
How should I teach my lost neighbor? Is God with you? That's all you need. What should I say to them? Is God with you? That's all you need. I don't know about how to teach. Is God with you? Is it something you should be doing? You can do it. God's with you. Whatever it is that so often we do to attempt to disqualify ourselves, because we look at our lives and we take inventory and go, well, I can't talk very well, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, therefore I can't do anything. If only you could have seen me preach 19 years ago. Oh dear. <laughs> oh, oh, so bad. So bad. Uh, I, I set I set new lows for the training program. That's that's what I did. It was awful. Uh, elders should tell me. I wouldn't think you were going to make it. You were so terrible. I, I know. Uh, I, I've told you this many times. In high school and in college, I wrote twenty page papers instead of doing ten minute talks because I couldn't speak. Before anybody, my knees knocked, my tongue twisted. It was absolutely terrifying. So how am I doing this? Not by my ability. Not by my strength. Because God's with me and it's something I have to do. But it's not who I am. It's not that I I have a heart attack every time I'm up here. I have triple heart attacks going on a gospel meeting. It scares me to death. But it's not about ability. It's about, I have opportunity. And therefore I will use it. And that's what God is calling Moses. Moses says, who am I? That's a great place to be. Stay in that place of insufficiency. You're right. Who am I? That I would do anything before God. And God's answer, I'm with you. That's all you need. How many times does God have to say that to people in the scriptures? You don't need to fear, I'm with you. Nothing to worry about, I'm with you. I love that that promise not only is stated to people like Moses and people like Joshua and like to his prophets over and over again, he says that. You know God said that to you. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God is with you. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God's with you. You don't need any abilities. You don't need any talent. You don't need anything special. And I love that God does not come to Moses and say, no, it's because you're an Egyptian. No, because you were a shepherd. No, because now you're 80 years old and not 40 years old. Oh, because you raised your children so well. Or some other kind of talent or ability of Moses. That's not it. It Has nothing to do with the work of the kingdom of God. Is God with you? Does he want you to do the work that lies before you? Yes and yes. And that's all you need. Verse 12, and this shall be the sign for you. Here's Moses, who am I that I should do this? God says, I'm with you. And God says, now, now I'm going to give you a sign. All right, here's the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. All right, now that's not a Gideon sign, you know. (laughs) That's not a, okay, let me do something and show me right now that I'm supposed to go. 
How is that a sign? The sign is, you're going to come back here with my people. That's the sign. You know, often we think of signs like, okay, do something for me right now to show me. You know, it's like, get him, you know, make, make, do on the fleece. Let's, okay, now I know, you know, give me those kinds of things. That's not what he gives Moses for a sign. So what is that exactly is the sign? I believe the sign is this. Obey what God says and you'll see God work. And that's what he's telling them. You go do what I told you to do, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to be right back here with my people. Well, how am I going to know? By going and doing it. (laughs) That's how you're going to know. You're going to know when you go do what God told you to do. And when God tells you to do it, you go do it. And when you do it, then you'll see what God said, because it will come to pass. And that's the great picture that's being given us here. God is not going to show you something right now, but you know what you will see? You will see God keeping His promises. We just need to do the task that is given to us. We just need to go do the work that God has called us to do because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about these great abilities and great talents and what you can say or what you can't say or how well-versed you are or how much of the Bible you know. It's not about any of those things. It's about you just go and do the work and watch God work. In fact, friends, that is the very thing that Paul said, right? When he's writing to these Corinthians... I mean, it's a contest. Oh, Apollos, man, he is quite much more of an eloquent speaker. Oh, but Paul, you know, he, he's not too too great when he, he, he speaks, you know. He's, he's powerful. He's weighty, you know, but he, he's not like Apollos. You know. Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Now here's the big deal. Verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God gives the growth. That's what Moses just found out right here. Who am I? You're nothing. But it doesn't matter because I'm with you. That's exactly what you need to be. Is in your mind in a state of I am insufficient before God. And I don't need to tell myself I'm good enough and smart enough and everybody likes me and look at how great I am and all those kinds of things. That's not the, the, the value. The value is to maintain that humble heart before God. I'm insufficient for the task, but because God is with me and God is going to do the work, I will depend upon Him. In fact, our insufficiency is what makes us ready for the work. If you think it's about you, you're not ready for the work. If you think it's about how good you are at something, then you're not ready for the work. You're not depending upon God. You're depending upon you. You know how freeing that is? To serve Christ in that capacity. That's not about how good I can accomplish something or how good I can do something. It's me with my lack of ability and lack of talent and my complete insufficiency that I do what I'm able to do and I just watch God work. That's all you're called to do. Obey the Lord. Watch God work. It's not about you. 
It's all about God. Moses, who am I? God's with you. A man who said, who am I? What did people later on think about Moses? I mean, wow. Moses, right? (laughs) Deliverer of the people. Hero of Israel. Great patriarch. A man who stood there and said, I have nothing to offer. He had everything to offer because he had that kind of heart. And God was with him. I hope you'll have that kind of heart. And I hope that you will use that feeling of lack and that feeling of insufficiency not to avoid serving God, but the reason why you serve God. For God will use you you can accomplish his purposes if you will submit to him and obey him and follow him with all of your heart and you leave it all up to him to do the work you let him accomplish it and you just do what you can do day in and day out week in and week out reaching the lost, teaching souls loving your neighbor, serving one another doing the various tasks that God has given us to do and God will give the growth God will do the work and may we depend upon him We sing this song, we invite you then to come to Jesus. We invite you to turn away from a life of sin. And we invite you to give your life completely over to Jesus. To allow yourself to be clay in God's hands and to follow him and serve him. Let him use you in the work of the kingdom of God. Don't look at yourself, but look at him. You ready to come to him tonight? Won't you come now while we stand?